I'm Kevin McDermott, and this is the Faculty Profile Podcast. My guest today is Professor of History Jennifer Regan Lefebvre. Professor Regan Lefebvre is the author of the book Cosmopolitan Nationalism in the Victorian Empire, which explores collaboration between Irish and Indian nationalists in late Victorian London. And she's currently working on a second book. The working title is Imperial Wine the British Empire and the Making of the New World, which examines the growth of wine industries in former British colonies. In the classroom, Jennifer has taught courses on modern Ireland, modern Britain, a course titled Downton Abbey in Historical Context, and a first-year seminar titled London, Traditional, Modern, and Global. We'll cover some of those topics and much more as I speak with Professor Jennifer Regan Lefebvre on this episode of the Faculty Profile Podcast. Welcome to the show, Jennifer, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. Now, did I, I got the name pronounced correctly I'm afraid, through that? I'm I did afraid not. not. No. I, oh, my goodness. That's all right. No, it's, I, it's Regan Lefebvre. Regan Lefebvre. Yes, Regan Lefebvre. It's, uh, it, it looks very difficult. Lefebvre is actually, it's a very common northern French name. It's very common in eastern Canada. It means Smith. No, I, I do apologize <laughs> profusely. I rehearsed saying it incorrectly and blew it on the first take. So It, it really I, doesn't matter. I'm, yeah. Um, my husband jokes that we have a memorable name, and that actually makes us more memorable. Yes, it does. So, it does. Rather than um, if it were actually Smith. So let's let's stick on background a little bit. You were born in the States, but I know you spent a lot of time in Britain and Europe. Where where, where did you come from originally? Where yep, were you born? That's right. I'm actually from Hingham, Massachusetts, okay. which is the South Shore just south of Boston on the coast, um, which is a lovely colonial town, apparently Eleanor Roosevelt said it has the most beautiful Main Street in America. So it was an idyllic place to grow up. And then when I was in the fifth grade in the early 90s, my father's job transferred to London. Okay. So we went to England, initially thinking it would be for six months. And it turned into eight years, in my case. Yeah, yeah. So I actually stayed there through middle school and high school. I graduated from high school in London. I went to the American school. um, ASL in London? ASL, exactly. Which is great because I've actually... Since running to students, I have an advisee who is an ASL graduate as well. Yeah. So it was a great school, an international school. So I grew up in this kind of strange community. Historians of, of colonialism talk about hybridity, the idea that people can have several different identities and mesh them together. And that absolutely speaks to my experience. So I, I, I am American, um, but I was partly brought up in the UK. Most of my friends from high school are also hybrids. They often have one American and one British parent. So I feel very comfortable in the UK. And in many ways, it is like home. But but I'm from Massachusetts. Yeah. So you felt not only connected to the kind of expat community that ASL and surrounding kind of supported, but also to culturally British experiences and identities as well? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a funny thing because I don't think any English person thinks of me as English or British. Um, And I'm probably more comfortable with the term British because it it can encompass a lot of people who don't feel ethnically English. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I certainly don't feel 100% American in the sense that I feel that my my culture and my ways of thinking have been very influenced by that experience. Sure. And then I went back. So that's the other thing. So I, I came back to the U.S. for my undergraduate degree which I did in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And I decided to spend my junior year abroad in Galway in the west of Ireland. And that made me think I want to continue with Irish history. Yeah. 
So I moved to Northern Ireland, to Belfast, to do a master's and then a PhD at Queen's University Belfast. And then I moved to France briefly, and then back to the UK where I taught for a number of years, and then back to France, and then finally to Connecticut. So I think I've lived 18 years of my life in Europe, which okay. I, I will tell you is more than half. So if the first uh, kind of move back over, was it common for ASL students to come back to the States to do undergraduate, or was that something unique that, that you kind of chose to do? No, it was absolutely common. I think okay. most of my friends went to the US or Canada for undergraduate degrees. Yeah. What was unusual about my experience at ASL, and the reason why most of my friends sort of had one parent from each culture, is that many students came and stayed for two or three years, and then they moved on. Okay. And I stayed for eight years. What was your, what was your dad's, was he business, or what was he, do, what would, kept him over there for so long? This is really or funny, actually. Um, it was business. He worked for the NFL. Okay. The National oh. Football League. In, your, uh, in England, in Europe? In, in England, they actually were setting NFL up, Europe, or? There was an NFL Europe, and, yeah. and okay. he was brought over to help run it. Okay. Which is kind of funny, because I am not a big fan of American football, <laughs> even though it's completely shaped my life and given me, you know, indirectly through my father, a lot yeah. of exciting opportunities. Did you, you as a, you said fifth grade and mm -hmm. on, were you hanging around teams, or did you have exposure to, like, the game, the stadium, the players at all when you were younger? Or? Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, we used to, during the season, and their season was in the spring in the NFL Europe League, okay. we used to go to games every weekend. And initially they were at Wembley Stadium, and then they moved to a smaller stadium, White Hart Lane, which is where the Tottenham Hotspurs play, yeah. if you like premiership football. Is that your Premier League? Team, no, it, no, no, it's it's actually Arsenal. Okay, yeah, the Gunners. The Gunners. All right. Yes, All right. well done. Um, so yeah, we went to these games. We went to see these American football games most weekends, and I had very little sense of what was going on. And as you know, American football games are very long. Yeah. So I think as a ten-year-old, I I thought it was really boring. I wasn't really <laughs> into the sport. Yeah. <laughs> I can appreciate it a little bit more now, but I'm not really a big fan. And they're talking maybe relocating a team over there to London. Because the games, the one-offs that they do each year seem to be popular. They're sold out and attract, it seems, some good attention in, in uh, England as well. I guess uh, so. I guess so. I think you get a lot of American fans who go overseas. Yeah. And so y you came back to Georgetown mm -hmm. um, and studied in D.C., and then Galway to Belfast. Um, what, what was Belfast like at the, at the times? Can you give us kind of the, the years and, and also kind of a picture of what Belfast um, as a city looked like to you on the, on the ground level? So I was in Belfast for five years from the summer of 2003 until the summer of 2008. And Kevin, it was a fantastically exciting time. Yeah. Because you were getting what they call the peace dividend. So there was a peace process to end 30 years or 400 years of conflict in Northern Ireland, depending on how you look at it. Um, that took place throughout the 1990s, which is when I was living in London. And that's actually, we can talk about this later, that's really what sparked my interest in Irish and British history, um, was trying to understand the conflict, which was affecting me, you know, fairly closely living in London. So there was a peace process throughout the 1990s. It is seen as concluding with the Belfast or the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. And as a result of peace, you finally get money flowing into Northern Ireland because if you believe that your business was going to be bombed, you're not going to open it. Yeah. Um, it was a difficult place for people to do business. 
Um, so there was a lot of investment flowing in. There was money from the European Union coming in. Uh, there was a sense of just optimism and hope and excitement that this was a new time in Northern Ireland. Was that kind of concurrent with the rise of the Republic of Ireland and kind of the Celtic Tiger days of economic prosperity there as well? Absolutely. Yeah, There's okay. a lot of economic growth in the South in the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. Um, some of the investment in Northern Ireland was coming very directly from you know, Dublin-based investors and so okay. on. So yeah, it was, a, it was a boom time and it was really exciting. Uh, I think people really, it's a little bit like right now where we have the, uh, the winter's ended and people are so excited for spring. It was a little bit that feeling that everybody just wanted to go out and celebrate. Yeah. So it was just a time of exciting cultural growth and optimism. There were new businesses opening. There were new restaurants. And Belfast is not a very big place. So as a graduate student, you know, I often got invited to talks or events downtown, or we liked to go to museums or concerts. You saw a lot of people you knew. You really felt like you were part of this kind of buzzing and very small intellectual, artsy, or political community. Did the economic investment change the divide between Protestant and Catholic or, you know, Republican or those affiliated more with English ties? Um, or did that kind of remain, that dividing line between those two communities? It's a really tough question to answer, actually. It's a big question. Uh, there are a few different ways that, and here I sort of go into scholar mode when I'm yeah. thinking about the answers to this question. Because one of the big questions for historians of Northern Ireland is to what extent has economic you know, stagnancy or, or lack of growth fueled conflict? To what extent has economic difference between the two communities, if you want to talk about two communities? To what extent has that fueled conflict? And to what extent, once people see economic growth, are they less likely to return to violence, for example? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's also an argument that the Catholic or nationalist community has benefited much, much more from the economic prosperity, mm -hmm. partly because they've seen more job growth, um, because they were more unemployed, or more likely to be unemployed, I should say, beforehand, but also perhaps because they have been more adept at applying for funding, for example, to support Irish language initiatives or to support educational opportunities or, or cultural events and so on, yeah. and that perhaps the Protestant working class has really lagged behind. So in some, t in some ways it's, it's removed some of that divide, and in some ways it's intensified it. Was there still periodic violence during that time, or was that fairly stamped out um, in the late 90s, early 2000s? No, there was definitely still violence, yeah. and a lot of the violence has become associated with um, drugs, Okay. Uh, illegal smuggling, this kind of thing. So uh, not necessarily religious and governmental divides, but problems associated with poverty and lack of opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. So it still often is articulated through a sense of ethnic or, or religious or political identity. So people still talk about that, but I don't think many people who are taking to the streets who are violent, who are overwhelmingly young men, so teenage men, um, uh, boys, uh, men in their young 20s, often who, who feel uh, very much like they're not keeping up with the new economy, that they have not been recipients of this growth, that they haven't benefited, Yeah, I feel a lot of frustration. You've written quite a bit on nationalist movements, and I wonder, it, it seems like this is the spark of some of that interest, but one uh, 
person in particular of the Fenian Brotherhood that you have written about, um, JFX O'Brien. Mm -hmm. Where did your interest in, in him come from? Was that sparked during your time in Belfast? And why is he an, an integral person to the Irish, na Irish nationalist movement? That's a good question. So JFX O'Brien was actually the byproduct of another project I was doing, okay. which was a biographical study of a man named Alfred Webb. So he was the topic of my doctoral research and then my first book. Webb was. Webb was, okay. yes. Yeah. So the first book was called Cosmopolitan Nationalism in the Victorian Empire. Um, oh, gosh, it's a long title. Ireland, India, and the Politics of Alfred Webb. <laughs> so Alfred Webb was a, was a pretty obscure figure before I started working on him. He was an Irish Quaker, which makes him part of a, a tiny minority, who got involved in organized Irish nationalism, parliamentary nationalism, in the 1870s and 1880s. And he plays a really important but fairly shadowy role in various nationalist organizations for about 35 years. So he's the secretary of one group, he's the treasurer of another group, and so on. So he's intimately involved in Irish nationalist life. But what really interested me is that as an Irish MP and administrator in London, which is where, of course, Parliament was based, he got to know a number of Indian nationalists. And Meeting together, they realized, hey, we have a lot in common. We are both sort of colonies of the British Empire. Ireland status is very ambiguous, but India is certainly the greatest colony of the British Empire. And we want more political rights. We want more self-governance. We should be working together. We have a lot in common. We're friends. Yeah. So that was what I was interested in learning more about. And he was actually invited to be president of the Indian National Congress in 1894. And that's fascinating because... An Irish Quaker is invited to... India and say the Indian National Congress exactly okay. which is this all India organization it's a pretty small elitist one but it has a lot of influence and and, and stature yeah. um, that's created in 1885 and it's the forerunner to the modern Congress party which has been you know one of the largest political parties in the world's largest democracy yeah in the late 20th early 21st century okay. so how does this Irish Quaker end up there in the first place that was a fascinating question to me, and yeah. that's what I tried to do in that book. And so that relationship started in Parliament, just as as colonial representatives meeting in London. As sure, well. because one of the early Congress leaders is a guy named Dadabai Naroji, and Naroji is a MP for a London constituency, and he was elected with Irish support and help. Okay. And what I uncovered actually is there had been this effort for well, about twenty years for Irish MPs and some Indians who are looking to stand for Parliament to work together. Do the British know this is going on? Like yes. that this foment is happening and these relationships are happening and what, what's their response to it? Well, we They're, can't really talk about the British in kind of singular terms. Yeah. So there are members of the Liberal Party who are all for it. Okay. Because they envision that actually empire could possibly be a force for good. They realize that there are problems with the imperial system. They want to address them, and they want to improve them. So the idea of, rep of having an actual parliamentary elected figure for India is hugely exciting to them. Okay. So then does Webb inspire, and, and would you even uh, um, call it the Fenian Brotherhood at this point in the, in the mid-1800s, or does that formation happen later? Um, and, and also, what tactics are they kind of using to provide... Or, or to advance their agenda in, in Ireland? So it's actually the other way around. So okay. the Fenians um, 
are formed in the late 1850s and most active in the 1860s. Okay. And they're a revolutionary group that's committed to creating Ireland as a completely separate republic. And they have a botched rebellion in 1867, which is led by JFX O'Brien. Um, and they're not terribly effective as a political force. Okay. In the sense of achieving their goals, they're very influential in getting a lot of young men excited about the possibility of Irish republicanism. A lot of their members are sort of rehabilitated into parliamentary nationalism in the 1880s. So rather than saying, we are fighting for revolution, they say, we're going to support this movement, which is going to give us a devolved government within the British state. I see. So that's and actually a big shift you can see from, uh, from the fringe into the center. So JFX O'Brien is somebody who has made that transition. So when I first came across him in the 1880s and 1890s, he's writing to Alfred Webb uh, because they're both administrators in this Irish parliamentary party. And JFX O'Brien is a sort of straight up, uh, you know, elected politician slash functionary type. And then I realized he had this fiendian past, that he had been an organizer and even a leader in this 1867 rebellion. Yeah. And he hand-wrote out his autobiography in the 1890s. He was not a very good writer, so he asked Alfred Webb for help. So you actually have his handwritten autobiography with Webb's comments in the margins. And it had never been published. O'Brien intended to publish it. He never got around to it. So I thought, I'm going to do this. So that was actually my second book-length project that I published. It was JFX O'Brien's autobiography, which I had to transcribe from his handwritten notes, add my own notes to explain it to a modern reader, and I wrote a critical introduction. Okay. Oh, interesting. To the, your uh, other book project, the Cosmopolitan Nationalism book, um, w the late Victorian era, th this is 1880s, 1890s. Okay. W what is... Um, what does England look like? What does London look like at that time that these Irish and Indian nationalists are are meeting? We're post-industrial revolution, huge demographic growth, right? I mean, and, and what kind of city are they meeting in? I think they're meeting in a really exciting city. Yeah. I think they see themselves as meeting in the center of the empire, uh, in a global capital. You know, it's one of the larger cities of the world. There is huge movement of people. There's a lot of migration. There are people who come to London from all parts of the world to live there, either temporarily or permanently. There are people who come from other parts of the United Kingdom to live there. So it's a flourishing and exciting place. Uh, it's a huge center for trade. London was still very much an active port then. Yeah. I don't think when you think of London today, you think of it as a port city, but technically it is. So I think they see it as a flourishing place of, of trade in, in goods and people and also in ideas. Yeah. And it's so large that it really offers a lot of opportunity. Some of them find it quite lonely in the sense of going to a very large place where you know very few people. Um, and some of them found it just very difficult, just like people who go to London today find that it's very expensive. Yeah. So there were Irish MPs who came to London and, and found it a little bit challenging to live there. Now, I would imagine this is one of the topics that you cover in your first-year seminar course that, that focuses on London. Yeah, when I taught my first-year seminar course, which was called London, I think it was called Traditional, Global, and Modern, in some kind of order, um, I wanted to look at the idea that London means so many different things to so many people. So, you know, do you associate London with the Queen? Do you associate it with all the palaces, um, you know, with the Duchess of Cambridge, with high tea? 
or do you associate it with, I don't know, the Sex Pistols, the Clash? Yeah. Um, and now modern banking and finance center yeah. and hub of technology. Yeah, the city yeah. with all its big buildings, the gherkin, yeah. you know, the shard, all this exciting growth. Um, and that it is all these things. So it's not a case of choosing, well, it's definitely more this kind of city than that kind of city. It's a case of looking at how a huge city can foster all these different kinds of cultures alongside each other. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm curious about Galway. I, my heritage is Irish, and mm-hmm. we come from my, my mother's side and my father's side, both um, not far from Galway. And my wife and I started our honeymoon in Galway as well. That was our first uh, destination. It, Galway is quite a different city from London. What, um, what kind of were your impressions of studying there as a junior in, in college, and, and how did that smaller Irish city influence you? Wow, that's a good question. Oh, I love Galway. Yeah. It's an amazing place. It is very much a nocturnal city. There's not a lot going on during the day. It's very quiet. It's only got a population of about 70 or 80,000 people. But then it completely comes alive after dark, which, you know, in winter in Ireland is like, you know, 2.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but the pubs, um, you know, the crack, as they say, the, the fun, the, the banter, the music, um, a kind of sense of the absurd that sort of permeates all these kinds of meetings. People, we used to talk about having Galway moments, which could mean that, you know, you went to a pub and you randomly met some people and they became your new best friends and you did silly things with them. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you ended up singing a song or something. I had many of those experiences. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a yeah. wonderful place. I loved it. I think coming from being an undergraduate at a very prestigious and intense and very enjoyable academic program in the United States. I was very, very high strung. And Galway was great for me to just relax a little bit. And I think a little bit more to pursue study for the love of it. Mm-hmm. And I think I was able to sort of relax into my studies and, and, and really enjoy them. I came back a much better student, Yeah, I think. Does uh, it, is it National University Ireland Galway? Yes. NUI Galway. Okay. It used to be called UCG University College Galway. Yeah. And there was some resistance to the name change. As I you see. can imagine. I see. Um, so you're exposed to the, the uh, British style classroom and coursework, and then you taught University of Exeter and University of Cambridge. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship of professor? And student, you know. Also, I'm interested that you feel like you came back a better student from uh, NUI Galway. Um, how do you? How did you work with your professor as a student there? And then, when you were a professor, Exeter and Cambridge, how did you feel you interacted with students in those environments? Well, Galway and Exeter were were kind of similar in that they both had the format that I was actually used to in the United States. Um, at a larger research university, where you had big lectures for your classes, and then you would break once a week or every other week into smaller recitation or, or, or tutorial groups, often led by a graduate student, um, groups of sort of 12 to 14. So it's funny because in some ways I should have had much less attention from professors, but because I was at a point in my career in Galway where I was starting to take ideas seriously and starting to formulate my own ideas for research, I think I actually got to know some of my professors a lot better because I started going to their office hours and saying, I have ideas, and and so on. Um, So that was, 
that was a really great experience for me. And I'm actually, I've, I've kept in touch with some of those people. Now, of course, they're colleagues. Yeah. Um, when I was at Exeter, it was a similar situation. At Exeter, I was teaching imperial history. So I taught a comparative imperial history class between Britain and France, and I taught um, an Irish history class, which was a lot of fun as well, which looked at Ireland through the lens of decolonization, whether it makes sense to think about Ireland as a, a colonial experiment. Okay. Maybe a failed one? I'm not sure. Maybe a successful one. So, and then that, I actually, for my Irish history class at Exeter, I had a small seminar group that I kept throughout the whole entire year, actually. They don't have quite the same semester system. So they were actually similar to what you get at a lot of American larger universities. What was very, very different was, was teaching at the University of Cambridge because they have this really unique hybrid system where you have lectures put on by the university departments, but students actually enroll in a college so in theory, the lectures are kind of open to anyone, but you enroll in a college and the college organizes what they call tutorials or supervisions for your topic. And that involves sitting down with an expert once a week, and normally you're asked to produce an essay as a student, and you go over it with them intensively for an hour. And you ask all the questions you had about the reading. So you work very hard and you write quite a bit. Yeah. It leads to an incredibly intense experience sometimes and relationship between professors and students. Yeah. When you now teaching at a small liberal arts college, it sounds like there are pieces from all of those different experiences that come into play here um, at Trinity, the first year seminar program, um, smaller class sizes, um, and also the personal interaction between professor and student outside of class as well. Is that fair to, to say? I think so. One of the strange things about my job in Cambridge was I was teaching in a college. It was called King's College, which I have to say is the most wonderful and beautiful college at the University of Cambridge. <laughs> I highly recommend it for a visit. And I also had some big administrative jobs within the college. And nobody here really believes that I did all this because you would never have this kind of job in the US. So I was basically the equivalent to the associate dean of students. And I was basically running the college's own mini history department, and I was teaching full-time. Okay. So. And in my capacity as dean of students, I was doing night and weekend shifts. I was dealing with all sorts of issues relating to student accommodation. So it was incredibly intense. I lived in the center of the college. I had this beautiful apartment, um, which was furnished by John Maynard Keynes and had all sorts of crazy art in it. And I was living alone at the time because I had a commuter relationship with my husband, who did not have a job in Cambridge. He had a job in Paris. So I was completely immersed in college life. We had dinners available to us every night if we wanted to. We had to dress up. We had to put on these academic black gowns like you wear at graduation. <laughs> and we for would, dinner every night? For dinner, and we would go uh. to dinner, and there was lots of wine and very good food and amazing interdisciplinary conversations. Yeah. So I really... Is this with faculty members or with, students or both? or With faculty members. With faculty, yeah. With faculty okay. members. Oh, wow. So they had a faculty in the college of about 120 people, so a little bit smaller than Trinity. So I love that. I love exchanging ideas with people from different departments and learning about what they do and just having intelligent conversations with other people about a range of yeah. different topics. So I found that really invigorating. And I loved getting to know the students. And I've tried to actually bring not just some of these ideas into my job at Trinity, but you know, some of the actual people. So it was great. Last year, I had one of my former students, uh, whose name is Parker Ramsey, come and give an organ concert at Trinity. 
Yeah. He was the in the or- chapel. In the, the chapel. Oh, he was the organ scholar yeah. at King's, which is a very prestigious position. He's an amazing organist, and he also did history with me. Yeah. So I, I arranged an invitation with John Rose, and he came last year, and that was great. And right now I'm trying to set up one of my current advisees at Trinity with an internship with one of my former students from Cambridge. So I'm trying to keep those connections live. Yeah, that's great, and such to the benefit of the Trinity community and the, the kids who you're working with now. Um, I want to ask you about your, your next book project. Um, you're, you're writing about um, the wine production um, and, and the wine cultures of various different um, colonies. Something and I, I, you've written on in the past is the production of wine in Ireland, which I don't think is something that most uh, associate with Ireland. We most often think of the delicious whiskeys and the delicious beers that, that Ireland produces. What is, um, what's the angle on the, on the wine production in Ireland, and, and how is it important to the, to the British picture? It's not quite that. It's oh. the Irish role in wine production in other places. Oh, but okay. it's still an interesting question. Yeah. Well, with climate change, it's, I think we have one or two vineyards in the southwest of Ireland now. Yeah. There are some, some good vineyards in, in southern England that are, are similar, actually, to northern France in terms of um, topography and so on. So these uh, are Irish workers... Tra- traveling and, and winemakers. So I've been interested yeah. in this Irish winemaker named Fallon who went to Australia in the 1840s and as far as I know must have known nothing about wine before he went. I mean he was 18, he was from Athlone which is in the middle of the country. There's no grape cultivation in Athlone and he's in Australia and he becomes a major wine producer so I was really interested. How did he learn this yeah. and, and, and why? So the book project started with a pretty simple question which is How is it possible that some of the world's biggest wine producers today, like Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, is it a coincidence that they were all British colonies? Because one thing that historians of the British Empire get really excited about is the trade in commodities. Because there's this whole idea that, of course, empires exist to trade goods or maybe to extract goods from colonies to the mother country. But nobody's actually looked at wine as one of those. And if you look at the histories that have been written of Australian winemakers or Australian wine industries, to a certain extent South African, uh, there's really no mention of this imperial angle. So I wanted to really flesh it out and figure out how this happened. Do those wine, um, I- I- those wine regions emerge at a similar time? Like is it is it you know you mentioned the Australia in the eighteen mid eighteen uh, mid nineteenth century? Um, does it pop up in South Africa th- around the same time? Or? They're all a little bit different because South Africa makes really quite good wine um, in, the, in the 18th century okay. in vineyards that have been established by the Dutch. And actually, that's what I was working on this morning, is trying to understand once South Africa, or the Cape Colony more specifically, becomes British in the early 19th century, what happens to those vineyards. Uh, they're famed for a wine called Constantia wine, which is a sweet wine. But the modern South, South, excuse me, South African wine industry, I think, is quite different. Um, and I don't know when that break happens, that they go from producing Constantia wine to producing still table wines that they're known for today. I see. South Africa was a big producer, but the really important producer I'm interested in was Australia yeah. in the 19th century. And that is completely started from scratch by British settlers. And they get to Australia, the first fleet, which is this you know, fleet of ships that goes to Australia to form a penal colony, essentially, actually brings vine cuttings with them Hmm. in order to plant vineyards. 
because they're working in an imperial system where they see different colonies as producing different cash crops. So cotton and tobacco and sugar. Yeah. And, and they, they can be think the wine producers. They will do the wine. Very good. That's to, a nice, to round it out. Yeah, <laughs> nice to produce that for yeah. home consumption and send it back as well. The problem is in Australia in the 19th century, most of these British expats know very little about how to make wine. I mean, they can make, they, didn't they let can that grow stop grapes. Them, no, they don't let that stop. <laughs> yeah. they, they can grow grapes. They can produce grape juice, grape must. But actually making really good wines out of that is really hard. Yeah, yeah. Were they relying on their distillery experience and their ability to make good beer and wine or uh, uh, beer and, and liquor or is there no crossover I'm not therein, even sure or? I'm not even sure there's much crossover I think yeah. it's you could say it's 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 sort of a colonial arrogance or something that we can make this land which we believe to be nothing into something civilized we're just going to do it yeah bold it's, it's very bold go after it um, you this last uh, January taught a J term course on uh, Downton Abbey, which um, my sisters are thrilled that I get to talk to you about this and um, other fans of the show. My wife and I are tearing through the series right now. Um, can you start just with describing for people who might not be familiar what J term is? It's a new um, formation at Trinity, and, and tell us a little bit about what that term actually means. Okay, J-term stands for January term. It's a really fun concept that a lot of other liberal arts colleges have, and Trinity has just rolled out as a kind of trial over the past few years. And it allows students to take a half-credit class over two or three weeks in January, so before they would normally return for the normal start of classes. And I think it's popular professors because it's a chance to do something a little bit quirky that you wouldn't do in a normal full credit class over the course of a semester. And it's great for the students because it's intensive. And the students who took my class all did really quite well. I think they had very few other distractions. And they were able to really focus on their work. And we could do a lot of fun stuff in the classroom with a small group. I only had five students in the end, which was ideal. It was wonderful. Yeah. So we, for example, spent a lot of time in the Watkinson Library, which is the rare books library here at Trinity. And they have tons of incredible material from Downton Abbey era. So they had all sorts of World War One era British recruiting posters. Yeah. They have a gramophone. Okay. So we got to go and play the gramophone. And so the, the show, um, I, and I, I am just kind of getting a little primer on it as well myself. It opens in 1912, just after the sinking of the Titanic, major historical event. And, and the course is titled Downton Abbey in Historical Context. So... Um, and then the first season ends with um, the outbreak of, of World War One. What other important historical angles do you get at in the course or aim to, to expose the students to through the show? The Downton Abbey course was not really events-based. It okay. looked at some of the larger trends in social and cultural history. So Downton Abbey follows the story of a large landed estate in the north of England in Yorkshire. The family who live there, the Crowleys, and then all the people who live, as they say, below stairs or work below stairs, so the servants who yeah. wait on this family. And it's their lives and loves and the problems they have. So we looked at, in my course, we looked at the place of landed estates, how they were created, and how they went into decline in the late 19th century. So that's one of the themes running through Downton Abbey is what's going to happen to the estate. Can they afford to keep up this huge estate? There's and a fairly complicated legal matter that emerges pretty early in the show. Lord Grantham, he's got an American-born wife, is that right? Yes, and, which was okay. very common. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, they yeah. were called dollar princesses. 
dollar princesses. Did you know that yeah. w- that Winston Churchill was half American? I did not know that. His no. mother was American. She okay. was brought in as one of these dollar princesses. Basically, you had American families who had a lot of money but really craved that kind of prestige and title associated uh, with the British aristocracy. Status and, and class. Exactly. And, oh, okay. and all yeah. the trappings that came with it. And you had a British aristocracy that had that in spades but was lacking in funds. Uh. So in many ways they were they were perfect marriages. So his American-born wife is the uh, inherits a fortune from her family, and then she, so she marries Lord Grantham, um, and but so that's indicative of like this estated landed class being on the decline. Yes. In, in England, okay, in, very interesting. Um, are, are so tell us a little bit about the relationship between the the servants and the. The upstairs people, um, the 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 I guess I don't even, I'm, I'm mixing up my terms here a little bit, um, but the the help and those who are um, in in charge of the estate as well. Well, we looked at a lot of different theories or, or ways to characterize these kinds of relationships. Like we talked a lot about paternalism in Downton Abbey. The Grantham family sees themselves as as having a real responsibility to actually look after these people and to provide them with steady and secure employment. And not just for people who work in the house, but also people who live on the land that they own and rent out. Mm-hmm. So all the tenant farmers, for example. Um, and we talked about that in terms of Benjamin Disraeli's idea of one nation conservatism. So this is the idea that Britain is a, is a, uh, a society where everybody has a role to play and the upper classes have a duty and a responsibility to govern well on behalf of the lower orders and to take care of them, essentially. Yeah. So we talked about that idea. We've read some really great stuff by a historian named Lucy DeLapp, who argues that we think about domestic service as declining over the course of the 20th century, but actually it's just changed forms. So a lot of people pay for service in their home or that could be done in the home, for example, uh, childcare or, or cleaners and so on. Yeah. But the relationship has changed. But she does lots of oral history with people who used to be servants and talks about their relationship with their employers, which could be quite close. So this a, a little segue into our first listener-submitted question, which came uh, via Twitter, which the show is at Faculty Profile. Um, but it comes from Martha. and um, Hi, Martha. So Martha from Massachusetts wrote that she's impressed by how kind and concerned the upstairs people are for the downstairs. So... Is that portrayal realistic, and would there have been a more formal relationship between the household and the staff? It's really hard to know, Martha. I don't think it's unrealistic. I find it just impossible to believe, because human nature does not change, that you can live that closely with somebody for, in some cases, 20 or 30 years and not get to know them as a person. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily representative of all houses. I think there were, there were places where relationships were really quite strained. But for some of the servants in the house, the relationship with the employer is a very intimate one. So they're involved, for example, in dressing them. Um, And I think that has to be a relationship based on trust. Whether it's based on the people liking each other is a separate issue. Where does the show go after kind of the post-war, World War One? What are the next, you know, few kind of um, historically significant movements that, that the show follows and that you focused on? And I think there are fo- five or six seasons of the show? Or? There have been five seasons, it, and okay. it's been commissioned for a sixth, I which see. will air next year. Oh, I'm, exciting. I'm very excited. Yeah. <laughs> very so excited. season two, three, four, where do we go um, historically? 
Well, we have World War I, and then we have the aftermath of World War I. World War I was extremely traumatic for British society. Um, there's the loss of a lot of young life, especially um, young men. Um, there are economic problems. There are also new, interesting political opportunities. So one thing that's mentioned, although we don't really go into a lot of detail in, in political matters in, in the show, um, we do a little bit more in my class, is you have the election of the very first Labour government in 1924, led by Ramsay MacDonald. So that's something in Series 5 that a lot of the servants talk about, how excited they are, especially Daisy, who's the one who works in the kitchen. The she's the local girl who's the helper for the main cook? Exactly, okay. although she's, she's trying to work her way up and do something with her life. And she's excited about Ramsay MacDonald, that finally there's somebody who's going to represent her. Yeah. And then later she expresses dismay that it seems like his government is floundering. The is first women, oh, so, yeah. go, it only lasted nine months, the first Labour government. I see. Is women's suffrage one of the topics that, that the show, I know it kind of touches on it in maybe an episode in the first season. Is that another common thread throughout the show? or It's certainly something we talked a lot about in my class. I think it's something that they don't really delve into in the show much at all. Okay. There are actually... Women's suffrage is a big change, but there's another big change. So in the 19th century and before, um, voting rights, the franchise, was entirely property-based in Britain. The idea is that you have to demonstrate that you are a person of means to show that you have enough responsibility and stake in society to make choices, to make decisions, to vote. And that has gradually changed over the course of the 19th century. And the last installment is with the Representation of the People Act in 1918, which gives the vote to all men. So before 1918, it had gotten up to about two-thirds of men. So all men and certain groups of women, generally women over 30. So that's a huge change. So it's not just that we see during this time period votes for women. We also see votes for working-class men. Interesting. Um, before we, we end up, I, I um, want to mention that you were honored as one of the most innovative professors at the University of Exeter. Um, Tell me a little bit about what maybe that award kind of meant or, you know, what they might have been kind of recognizing you for, and where do you see your teaching going? Like, where where will you strive for innovation in the next five, ten years? Wow, that's a huge question. Well, when I got the award, I was, I was delighted because I really enjoyed teaching in Exeter. Uh, and I was just joking with my colleagues, like, I don't know what I'm doing. What are the rest of you doing that's not innovative? I'm just teaching. But I suppose what I'm, what I'm trying to do is, is really just get people to think in the classroom. So when we read an academic article, I'm always pushing students to think, where are the arguments? And students think an argument has to be really big and bold, like, the sky is blue. No, it's not. And I always say to students, if you could potentially argue the opposite, then you've got an argument. So I'm trying to get them to see how people always construct arguments in their work. Um, one thing I'm trying to do is to incorporate real tangible primary sources into my work all the time. So I like to take students to the library and actually have them read the paper copy of the newspapers. Yeah, and um, you mentioned the Watkinson Library, which is such a treasure. It's amazing. For, uh, yeah, yeah, here at I Trinity. even stopped at admissions tour group once, and they were standing outside the library, and I said, listen, your guy won't tell you this. The guy looked a little bit um, surprised. <laughs> said, but we have an amazing rare books library in there. And I think the parents were quite impressed. On yeah, that a spectacular yeah. collection there. It's great. Uh, so I work with Rick a lot and, and bring students in there. I try to do that. Um, 
I don't know. I just try to run a classroom that's exciting, that's lively, and that brings the past to life. I feel that there's a real urgency to history. Yeah. Well, the college is certainly lucky to have you, and your work with those students is, uh, yeah, is, is well noted and as a very popular professor well, here on you. campus. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you for speaking with me. It's been my pleasure. Wow, thank you. Um, so, yes, my, my thanks to you, uh, Jennifer, and also thank you to Eben in the booth and to the mill for the recording space. The faculty profile is on Twitter, as I said. You can follow the show at faculty profile, link to old episodes, leave comments, and suggest future guests for the show. All episodes of the Faculty Profile can be found on the Trinity College SoundCloud page. Go to soundcloud.com and search Trinity College. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know I did. And check back soon for more episodes of the Faculty Profile podcast.